So we're, we're back to Galatians. We, um, uh, 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 we finished Galatians 1 last year. And um, so we're all the way up to Galatians 2 this year, and we'll probably finish 3 before the end of the year. So Galatians chapter 2. Um, now, guys, uh, I say we're going to start Galatians chapter 2, but kind of we're going to start Galatians chapter 2, because as you know, I love to um, take long times to introduce certain things. Um, but guys, let me start like this. Um, do you remember uh, if you were if you were part last year that uh, it's it's verse six, it's chapter one, verse six that is so pivotal in understanding the 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 the, uh, the book of Galatians when Paul says, "I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel." And boy, did I I really I spent some time pounding that different gospel thing. You know that there's a different gospel. And, and Paul says in, in, in the, in the uh, he says to his audience that you, you have before you competing gospels. There's a gospel of this and a gospel of that, but I'm telling you, there's only one of those things. So w- with that in mind, there's a sense in which you can say that the first century, the, the century that Paul's writing this, is the birthplace of relativism. Um, um, <laughs> You know, there's nothing new under the sun, but, but, but the, the point is there's, um, um, I mean, I, I hope I don't insult you by this whole discussion of relativism for a moment. You, you think that, um, uh, that this is just, you know, some, um, oh, I just, hello, little board. <clears throat> okay. Well, um, <laughs> It must be the color. I, I, I do not understand that thing, and I, I, I would like to um, set a grenade off right under it. <laughs> I hate it if you know when it doesn't work. And but anyway, um, uh, the birthplace of relativism, and you know, you think, well, that's just a bunch of churchy words for you people. Relativism does, you know, I want to know about profits and losses, and I want to know about you know this, that, and the other idea. But I don't care about relativism. Well, I, really, I think you do. I think you care more than you know. You know what relativism is. Relativism is, a, is, a, is an approach to truth. And it's a, it's a denial that absolute truths exist. And so Paul is confronting a culture that says, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, you say that this is true, but we over here say that this is true. And we believe that, uh, that our uh, claims to truth are just as, uh, just as valid as your claims to truth. So um, because, uh, you know, there's more than one truth available, then uh, you just go on with your way with yours and we'll just stick with ours. Well, that's relativism, ladies and gentlemen, and that's what we're fighting in our age. Paul opens his book by saying, I marvel that you're moved by a a different gospel. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? I marvel too. I marvel that the people of God are so susceptible to such a different gospel. You know, um, uh, relativism is kind of the parent. If I had this little board, I'd draw this up. But one of the derivatives of, of relativism is a thing called pluralism. Pluralism um, is the thing that says there's, there's, you know, your religion is no better than my religion. And then the, 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 the derivative of that is this thing called the insistence upon tolerance. 
You know, you say, well, you know, I come to church and I want to hear the Bible taught. You know, he's talking up there talking about relativism. Yeah, I am. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the culture in which you find yourself is riddled with, a, with a, a, an approach to truth that Paul is combating in the book of Galatians. This, this idea that there could be more than one truth out there. You know, I want to read you something. You think, well, you know, that doesn't, that just, that's just uh, you know, in that church world of yours, you know, that's just religious people. Well, okay. Um, this is a, a, a interesting little book. She's talking about, um, uh, uh, let's see. Since my father is a mathematics professor, I like to remind him of, of, of these words. The very existence of your field is a product of the Christian worldview. Now, did you hear what I just read? Mathematics. Mathematics, at which so many of us did so poorly, it is a product of a Christian worldview. The fact that we can do math is because we believe in absolutes. Uh, And what is it that is the opposite of absolute? Oh, that's relativism. Now, and you think, well, you know, uh, that, that whole absolute talk, that, that just, that's just over in that philosophy world. Well, let me just read just a couple of paragraphs. This is kind of interesting, at least I thought. Today, however, most philosophers no longer even regard mathematics as a body of truths. Is Tripp here? Tripp, how are you out there? Yeah, Tripp's a mathematics teacher. And, I, and, and this guy just says that uh, most people, uh, most philosophers do not regard mathematics as a body of truths. The dominant philosophy of mathematics treats it as a social construction. Like the game of baseball. Three strikes and you're out is an arbitrary rule. It's not true or false. It's just the way that we choose to play the game. By the same token, mathematical rules are regarded as just the same way we play the game. Uh, Even American school children are now taught this postmodern view of math. A popular middle school curriculum says students should learn that mathematics is man-made. That it's arbitrary and good solutions are arrived at by consensus among those who are considered experts. Man-made? Arbitrary? Clearly, our public schools have waded deeply into the murky waters of postmodernism. Listen to this. If math is arbitrary, then there are no wrong answers. Just different perspectives. In Minnesota... Teachers are instructed to be intolerant, excuse me, in in Minnesota, teachers are instructed to be tolerant of multiple mathematical worldviews. In New Mexico, I met a young man who had recently graduated from high school where a mathematics teacher had labeled him a bigot for thinking it was important to get the right answer. Seven plus five is what? You bunch of bigots. Bigots. You're bigots because you believe. Ladies and gentlemen, you say, well, that, that pluralism, I mean, that relativism stuff, that doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. And it particularly affects you in the world of um, 
thought and religion. Yes, yes, yes. But it's crept over even into something as concrete as mathematics. You, If you do a mathematical problem and you come to a right answer, you're considered a bigot in certain circles. Why? Well, because of the influence of this whole thing called relativism, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what Paul is combating. He's saying, no, I'm sorry. There is not two or three gospels of which you might choose the one that most suits you. There's only one of those things. And I'm shocked. You know, I I won't do this to you because we don't have a... But I would love to read you some of this. Um, I, I made some... The intolerance of tolerance. I mean, another one of the, the, the derivatives of an, a, a loss of absolutes is this whole thing about tolerance. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the number one virtue. You say, well, this is one way that the loss of absolutes influences you, is this whole idea of tolerance. Even the definition of tolerance has changed. And the only thing that's intolerable is you and me. We're the only ones because we insist that there is, a, there is an absolute. Now, gang, I'm saying that that's what Paul is combating in the book of Galatians. He's combating a world which says there is, that there's another gospel other than the one that he preaches. And so he, he, he fights it. He, um, he says some, some pretty strong and nasty things about it. You remember, remember when we looked at that in chapter one? I, I say to you, anyone that brings another gospel other than the one that I brought to you, let him be accursed. Let him go to hell um, if, he, if he tampers with this gospel. Okay, so all of that to introduce chapter two. Guys, um, this is a section in Galatians chapter two where Paul is trying to demonstrate that there is no contradiction between himself and the other notables and that is of the church and their fundamental understanding of the gospel. Look, read verse one with me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or run in vain. You see what Paul is doing? He said, after 14 years, I, I, went, I made a trip to Jerusalem. And the purpose of that trip is to make sure that everybody knew that the gospel that I preached was not in any way contradictory than the, the, to the gospel that was preached by those big name guys like Peter and John. There is no difference between what I'm preaching and what Peter is preaching. All these notables, these people of reputation. In, in terms of our fundamental understanding of the gospel, we are on the exact same page. That is this, that's the purpose of this section of Galatians. Um, my gospel and their gospel is precisely the same gospel. I, I, there's no difference between what I preach and what Peter preaches. Um, okay, so that's, that's the purpose of this section of Galatians. At this point... Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to have to take a hard right and take you down a side road for at least the rest of tonight and maybe some of next week. 
His purpose in this section is to make sure that the, that the religious world knew that the gospel that he was preaching was in accord with the gospel that was being preached by the other guys. Okay? That's, that's the purpose of this. But the big objection to the gospel that Paul preached, the, the objection primarily by Jews, was that the gospel that Paul preached was a gospel that undercut the law. A gospel that, that, that created a, kind of a, promoted a lawlessness. Hey guys, do you remember that? Uh, do you remember um, how people said about the gospel that he preached in Romans chapter 6? Um, they said this, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Um, <clears throat> what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That was their great concern with the Apostle Paul's preaching. That if you keep preaching this grace stuff, it will undercut law. And therefore, Judaism reacted so violently against Paul because they were such devotees to the law. That gospel that Paul is preaching promotes lawlessness. Let's see if this color will work. It's called, no, it's all completely off now. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, you're getting better all the time. Um, I, I'll, I'll just, the gospel that Paul preaches promotes this thing called antinomianism. That is anti-against the law. It's a Greek word, nomos. Um, Paul's gospel undercuts the law. And therefore it is to be rejected. We cannot continue to promote this gospel of grace stuff because it undercuts the law. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to take a, a hard right into a side road. <laughs> the law. Where, where does the law fit in the Christian message? Now, gang, I, I started by telling you about this relativism thing because Paul's Big opposition is that there's a different gospel, that there's two out of them out there. And he says, no, 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 there's only one. And um, so that his, his people who opposed him were saying, um, well, his, his gospel's different from Peter's. So he goes to Jerusalem to make sure that gets settled. But their, their, their specific complaint was that gospel of grace undercuts law. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think I can go over this enough. It comes up again and again. How many of you, um, uh, I mean, did any of you blog in here? I mean, do you read, are you on the blogosphere at all? I mean, how many of you are connected to the Gospel Coalition? I mean, a few of you? Well, you know, there was just a huge flap over this very issue about four months ago, three months ago. Huge issue. Uh, the the new pastor at um, uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He's the uh, uh, grandson of Billy Graham. 
uh, got kicked out of Gospel Coalition. What was the issue? The issue was the role of the law in the gospel message. Um, if you if you are somebody like me and you promote grace, then in that message. Is there a role that law is to play? And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I really don't even know how, how deeply theological to get with you. Because, I mean, we could really go, we could really dig down over this, this subject. For instance, we want, I mean, I just to try to impress you all, is, um, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? Well, guys, I'm telling you, that's being debated. I had lunch with Richard Pratt the other day, uh, last uh, Thursday. Down there, another name, Richard Pratt. He's no mean scholar. He's well thought of in the world of theological, and and he uh, is teaching courses all over the, um, uh, the the country. And and he and he said in one of his seminary classes, what was the issue? The issue is sanctification, monergistic or synergistic. Now, set that aside. And let's just concentrate on this. What role does the law, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, what role does law play in the Christian message? Does it play any role? Now that we become Christians, can we discard the thing? Um, does it have any role to play? Because that was the, that was the attack of Paul. Paul, your gospel message of grace undercuts law. It creates antinomians. It's a, it's a, it's a, it opens the door to lawlessness. You got to do something about that, Paul. So, ladies and gentlemen, is there a role that law plays? Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen. And um, so we got, I got 12 minutes and I'm telling you, we're going to have to come back to this next week. But there are, there are three roles that the law plays. The first one is called pedagogical. You know what a pedagogy or a pedagogue is, you know, it's a, someone that teaches. Um, gang, Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, 7. Remember what that said. Everybody knows that verse. That they, they were, I'm sure you memorized that one. Romans 7, 7. Is Paul, Paul says this. I would not know um, sin had the law not said, thou shalt not covet. Go check it out. Romans 7, 7. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying something like this. <laughs> Had it not been for the role of the law, I would have never realized that I was a sinner. You know, Paul was this Pharisee of Pharisees and he did everything all right. And so he, he comes to the law that says, thou shalt not steal. And he says, well, I never stole anybody. I've never stolen anything before. I don't steal. I, you know, I just don't steal. <laughs> don't steal. And, uh, and then he comes the next day and says, thou shalt not lie. Well, I don't lie. No sir, Bobby. Not going to be lying. No lies coming out of this mouth. Not me, boy. I, uh, I tell the truth. And then uh, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's, oh, oh no, I've never done that. No, not me. I, I, not my, I'm clean, man. I, uh, 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 faithful. 
So he goes through all nine of them. Well, do that. Oh, yeah, honor the Sabbath. Oh, my mother and dad. Oh, you bet. Mm-hmm, I'm, I'm really good. Then he gets to the 10th commandment. And you know the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. He gets to the 10th commandment and he says, it says, thou shalt not covet. And he says, no, wait a minute. I know what you, how you steal. You use your hands, you take something. I know how you lie. You're telling, you know, you tell lies. But how do you covet? How does somebody covet? Well, you don't do it with your feet. You don't do it with your kneecap. You don't do it with your nose. How do you covet? Oh, that's something that goes on internally. And when Paul realized that for the first time in his spiritual experience, he recognized, oh my, I am a sinner. If the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, I would have never known my sin. Gang, one of the roles that the law plays is a pedagogical role. It teaches you something. And the primary thing, or at least the initial thing that it's supposed to teach you, is that you are in bad shape. Now, if you've still got a Bible available to you somewhere close, um, or some device of some description, I want you to turn in this book of Galatians to Galatians chapter 3. All I'm trying to do is answer. Is there a role that the law plays? All right? Now let me read you this. Beginning um, uh, Romans 3.19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, etc., etc. Now skip over to um, 24. 3.24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay, guys, I mean, I hope you can understand that. I hope you can understand Galatians 3.24. What the law does is it says, oh, you think... Uh, oh, you remember, remember in the little... The little testimony that we had Sunday morning um, from um, Chris Riccone, and he said, Jimmy said, uh, I was wicked, and, and, uh, and I said, oh, no, I'm not. You, do you remember that? Well, did you think that? Do you think you're not wicked? Then here's how I can convince you. All I got to do is take you to the law. And I can say, um, law number one, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. How are you doing with that? Any kind of idolatry crept into your life? I mean, you worship your kids, do you? Like everybody else, crazy man. Um, you, um, you, uh, you, you worship that, uh, that mighty dollar? I mean, do you worship uh, your figure? You worship your thinness? You worship your beauty? You worship your uh, corner office? You worship the, the esteem that you get from your job? How are you doing with that, no, that first one? That first one, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Hey, I, how'd you do with that? Oh, well, you know, I didn't do too good. And then uh, you go to number two. Number two says, uh, you know, you should not make any graven images. Why are you doing with that? 
Got pictures of Jesus hanging all over your house? Oh, no. <laughs> well, we'll get rid of those. Um, um, you know, and, and then uh, uh, you shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain. Anybody said anything like that? I mean, you didn't say that, did you? I mean, you never said those words, did you? Well, then how about that? Honor thy father and thy mother. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm certainly not guilty of violating that, but my kids are. <laughs> um, so you go to the fourth commandment, and, and you, uh, now you do with that honor your father. Well, I didn't do that very good. Mm-hmm, my gosh, I, you know, I told my mother to show up one time. You know? and, and then that fifth one, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How you doing with that, huh? How's that going? And so you tick them off, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And it's, by this time, it's, oh my gosh, what am I? What kind of wicked human being? And by the way, just to make it worse, Jesus comes along and says, thou, have heard, thou hast heard, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, any woman, any man that looks after a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Mm. Been faithful to your wife, have you? Good. But that's not what that meant. Because Jesus, and, and so do you see, guys, when I understand the law, Look at verse 24. It then becomes a tutor. It becomes someone that leads me. The the law, I stare at the law and and I'm finally convinced. My gosh, I thought I could save myself by all of my nice deeds. I give the United Way. I helped a little old lady across the street the other day. I mean, you know, I I keep my lawn mowed. <laughs> yeah. And and once I get the reality of what the law says, I'm tutored. It acts as a pedagogue. And it leads me to the only remedy that exists for sinners. That's what this text says, guys. Verse 20, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. <laughs> what role does, I mean, there's, there's two more. We're going to have to get to those next week. But what role does the law play Well, number one, it has a pedagogical use. And that pedagogy that is performed by the law is that at number one, it convinces me, man, do I ever need a savior? If there is no savior, I'm doomed. I need 
I need a savior because of what that law said was the standards of God. Let me show you this and, and, and then I'll quit. Um, I want you to go to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, you know what happens in Acts chapter two? That's Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit gets poured out and you know, there's all this stuff going on and you know, finally Peter says, hold on here, hold on here. And he begins to preach. He begins to preach in, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, verse 14. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14 is when the sermon starts. And, and the first thing that he does is that he explains what they just saw with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, that I will pour out my, that's verse 18, and I'll uh, pour my spirit on these days. So he's explaining what they just saw. And then he really gets rolling. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, <coughs> which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. Then he goes on and tells them more. Now, now drop down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, on the heels of what thing did the audience respond by saying, oh my gosh, what shall we do then? The moment they were convicted of their murder. When they got that, then they said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. What must we do? I say this to you, ladies and gentlemen, and then we'll quit. Um, you know, you see so much in Christian circles these days about, um, well, I mean, you see so much, uh, 47,000 people made professions of faith in Uganda. At a, at a, well, and, and, and you know, surely you don't believe that. I mean, but my point is simply this. One of the reasons that we're seeing such impotence in the church, I think today, is because it's filled with people who are not converted. And they're not converted because they didn't hear the law. They were told, anybody here want to live forever? Say, I do. Anybody here want to walk on golden streets? Say, I do. Now, what fool wouldn't want to walk on golden streets? <laughs> I mean, of course I want to walk on golden streets. Put me down for one of those. Yeah, let me get into that. But the thing that brings people to Christ is when they are cut to the quick. By the law. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is arranged in two, we'll call them halves. The first half is law. The second half is gospel and grace. But to get to the gospel and grace, you are first to go through the law. 
What role does the law play in the Christian message? Number one, it it serves as a pedagogue to lead us to see our need for Jesus Christ. There's two more. By the way, this isn't even the controversial one. Number three is the controversial one. We'll get to that next week. Let's quit. Our Father, I I do pray that you will um, uh, allow people in this place to hear a gospel that is dear to your heart and clear to their ears. Might they understand that ultimately the reason that we need a Savior is because we are such violators of the law of God. And because there is of our violations... We stand guilty and condemned before you. And then comes the good news. There's a Savior. There's a Savior who is Christ Jesus the Lord. And that Savior is the only solution and the only remedy for any of us and our sin. And we glory in Christ and his finished work. We pray all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.